Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, DeKalb County's district attorney is not charging any of the officers involved in the shooting death of Matthew Zadok Williams more than a year ago. After a review of all the evidence and the facts and the law, the body cameras, the 911 videos, um, and reviewing all the circumstances, we found that the use of force in this case was justified under the law. A conversation with DeKalb DA Sherry Boston. She talks about the factors her office used to determine not presenting the case to a grand jury. Also, in 2020, the nation's firearm homicide rate reached its highest level ever in over 25 years. Now, we'll hear strategies from the CDC about preventing gun violence and also reducing racial and ethnic disparities. All those important conversations coming up. But first, from our WABE newsroom, a British filmmaker has been subpoenaed to testify in Georgia's investigation of the 2020 election. Alex Holder shot numerous interviews with Donald Trump and his inner circle in the final months of the former president's administration. Some of his footage includes interviews from the campaign trail, as well as footage shot before and after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Holder will appear before a special grand jury in Atlanta on July 12th. The Georgia probe is focusing on whether Trump tried to illegally influence the 2020 election results. Action from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals is expected soon regarding Georgia's abortion law banning the procedure after six weeks. While abortion remains legal here up to 20 weeks, at least one clinic has already shut down, as we hear from Jess Mador. Georgia's six-week abortion ban has been suspended in the courts since Governor Brian Kemp signed it in 2019. But after the Supreme Court overturned Roe Friday, State Attorney General Chris Carr submitted a request asking the 11th Circuit to allow the law to take effect. Now, the court has asked all parties in the case to submit additional briefs addressing the effect the Supreme Court decision may have on the state's appeal. They're due by mid-July. The loss of Roe and the prospect of further abortion limits may already be having a chilling effect in Georgia. A 40-year-old Savannah clinic has shut down. A notice on the website says it's no longer taking appointments. Jess Mador, WABE News. And legal experts are warning women they should be careful where they're sharing sensitive medical information. That is in light of Friday's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, as we hear from Lily Oppenheimer. Georgia's 2019 abortion law banning most abortions after roughly six weeks of pregnancy is still pending approval from a federal court, which could deliver a decision in mid-July. Some people in states enacting abortion bans immediately, and those like Georgia, where the law is still up in the air, are worried about leaving a digital trail. Evika Pierre is the senior litigation counsel at If When How, a reproductive justice nonprofit and legal fund. She says now even researching an abortion is hard to keep private. Are you messaging privately? Are you surfing privately on the Internet? That's the information that would be on your phone or on your devices that might be able to be used against you in the future if you were to be investigated. Pierre says women need to be judicial about who they share information with. If someone fears that they might be imminently criminalized for something like a self-managed abortion or a pregnancy loss, we have resources for you. I'd encourage them to reach out to us at our Repro Legal Defense Fund. Meanwhile, abortion in Georgia remains legal for now, up to 20 weeks after fertilization. 
Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. A former principal convicted in the Atlanta public schools cheating scandal will not spend time in prison after all. A Fulton County judge altered the sentence he imposed on Dana Evans from seven years ago. Now, a jury found Evans guilty of racketeering, and she was a former Dobbs Elementary School principal. She was initially sentenced to a year in prison and four years probation. However, yesterday, Judge Jerry Baxter did away with the prison time and instead sentenced Evans to five years probation. Finally, local officials and environmental groups are calling on the federal government to enact stronger pollution rules for heavy-duty trucks. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has proposed stricter rules, but has not yet finalized them. Angeline Butler is the mayor for the city of Forest Park. She says pollution from trucks can have bad effects on people's health. When we talk about the issues surrounding pollution, one of the things that we often forget to mention is at the end of the day, clean air is a necessity for both citizens and our businesses alike. According to the EPA, the transportation sector is the country's biggest source of the pollution that contributes to climate change. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Sometimes it is all about numbers. According to data from the American Public Health Association, gun violence is the leading cause of premature death in the U.S. And the research also suggests that pre-pandemic, more than 38,000 people died by gun violence every year. And nearly 85,000 people are injured by gun violence each year. Now, 2020, here's what we... We're being told gun violence reached a historic high, the worst it had been in 25 years, with more than 100 deaths a day. Now, as you digest some of these numbers, we have to think about the rise in gun violence in the last two months as well. At least three mass shootings have taken place throughout the nation. And most recently, we know four people shot and killed at a medical building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Of course, we know what happened in Uvalde, Texas as well. And, of course, Buffalo, New York. Dr. Deborah Howry serves as the acting principal deputy director and the head of the National Center for Injury Prevention at the CDC. And she joins you now because we're going to talk about the state of gun violence, not only in Georgia and throughout the nation, but how the CDC is using research, grants, and education to not only bring awareness about it, but to help maybe prevent a rise in gun violence. Dr. Ari, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today. You know, when we talk about, and listen, we hear this all the time, gun violence, gun violence, gun violence, and then we hear about firearms, and folks, depending on who you ask, you'll get a whole lot of debates, but what do you think people miss in terms of understanding the connection between firearms, the rate of gun violence, and our public health in terms of nationwide, the the intersection of all that? I I think for me, it's that it's preventable. These deaths and injuries are preventable and there's things we can do about it. And I think about from being a mom, from being a greedy ER doc for over 15 years Mm -hmm. and from being at the CDC as a public health professional. So when we talk about the role of the CDC, and I can imagine someone listening saying, okay, we, we know what you all do. We understand how you're working with the pandemic and, and, and what you all have done in the history of this agency. But how do you even begin to talk about combating, preventing gun violence? Is that, is that realistic? Yeah, so you know, at CDC, we focus on all public health threats, and we're dedicated to 24-7. Gun violence is a public health threat. So at CDC, we look at the data, we fund research and interventions, and then we study them in communities to see if they're effective. But wouldn't that also mean that there is going to take collaborative public-private partnerships? Uh, Again, it's a word we use a lot on this program, a holistic approach involving so many stakeholders from federal to local to right down to communities that's a daunting task, one could probably think, and when you begin to talk about prevention. 
it's a daunting task, but everyone, everyone has a role to play in prevention, whether um, you're a member of a church, a mm -hmm. school, um, if you're a, a gun owner, you know, a parent, we all have a role to play. And, and you're right, the federal government can help with providing strategies and programs that work. States can help implement them in communities and individuals can help protect themselves and others from gun violence. Then I imagine you, you, someone like you, and you have this conversation and you run up against, well, are you talking about taking people's weapons away? Because now that's a whole nother conversation, Dr. Ari. Yes. So there's many things that can be done around preventing gun violence, preventing violence before it even happens. So, you know, looking at hospitals and having what we call um, violence interruption programs to where you can refer people to resources, do motivational counseling. Um, there's street outreach workers. Um, mm -hmm. We funded a program in Baltimore to where they would intervene and prevent conflicts from violently escalating. And certainly, again, as a healthcare provider, if I know somebody's at risk for hurting themselves, mm -hmm. talking with them, education and counseling, and pairing that with a safe storage device are really helpful. A few months ago, I had a conversation with someone I know you know, Dr. Mark Rosenberg is a public health researcher and the former president CEO of the Task Force for Global Health. And we talked about gun violence. He said there are four questions that we all must ask when trying to understand gun violence. Let's take a listen. And the four questions we should be asking ourselves are first, what's the problem? Who gets shot? Where? When? Under what circumstances? What's the relationship between the shooter and the victim? Mm -hmm. With what kind of weapon? Where does the weapon come from? But what's the problem? And are these rates increasing or decreasing? The second question we should be asking is, what are the causes? What's the role of gangs? What's the role of drugs and alcohol? What's the role of domestic violence? Mm -hmm. What's the role of kids having too easy access to firearms? What's the role of mental illness? But what's the role of poverty and lack of education mm -hmm. and discrimination and racism? We should be asking, what's the cause? The third question we should be asking is, what works? What works to prevent gun violence? And at the same time, when we say what works, what prevents gun violence and what works without infringing on the rights of law-abiding gun owners? Mm -hmm. You need both of those components to say what works. And then the fourth question we should be asking is, once you have something that works in a controlled setting, how do you scale it up? How do you translate it into legislation and policy and programs? But those questions, the question we lack the most and the most critical for us is what works. We don't know simple, basic things. We don't know, for example, if arming teachers, mm -hmm. arming every teacher in a school is going to prevent school shootings or whether it will result in more kids dying. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the policy of permitless carry will result in. There's some indications that it will increase gun homicides. But we don't know what works. And we can find out things that work both to reduce gun violence and to protect the rights of law-abiding gun owners. So, Doctor, he has a lot in there. He talks about what's the problem, what causes the problem, what works, and then when you find something that works, how do you scale it up? Based on all of those, what do you think is key that this nation has to focus on or that you all feel needs to be focused on? So a, a few things, and one I would say is really the significant rise in firearm violence. When we looked at from 2019 to 2020, particularly among young African-American men, we saw a 21-fold difference between um, young African-American men and um, white boys and young men mm -hmm. um, for homicide. So that's a population that we really need to support um, and really work with to decrease those disparities. And, you know, Dr. Rosenberg's right. We have to figure out what to do about it. A lot of it happens early on. So if we're talking mm -hmm. about things like structural racism and what's going on in communities, we have seen that things like earned income tax credit mm -hmm. and affordable housing can reduce violence. Mm -hmm. And in our study, we saw that um, the top or the poorest communities had the highest homicide rates. Similarly, we saw it for suicide. So it impacts violence. So we really need to look at community level interventions as well as looking at how do we help individuals. 
at that community level intervention at that level, then it goes back to, to my first question in terms of partnerships and collaborations, because you all can have all the research. You have the data. I remember someone said to me, you know what? No more data. We know what the problem is. No more data, Rose. It's time for how do we achieve actionable outcomes? So then with the with all the information that you have, all the data, all the research, is it not getting then you think to the right policymakers? Because I feel like I've been having this conversation now for a couple and Dr. Rosenberg has been talking about this for years. Yeah, you know, so CDC received um, firearm violence funding in 2020. It had been about 20 years before we've had dedicated funding to work mm-hmm. on this until then. So we're filling a 20 year void of promising practices and you know studying um, strategies that work. We're quickly trying to fill that void, but we have to work, you're right, with communities and with partners and multiple stakeholders, law enforcement, you know, to schools, everybody to really implement these solutions. And then for strategies at work, and I think I asked Dr. Rosenberg this as well, and I don't, if I remember correctly, couldn't really pinpoint, but is there a Another model out there in another nation somewhere around the globe um, where you see that these strategies have been working and all those things that Dr. Rosenberg talked about and you've been talking about that we have to consider that it's been working, including gun rights for those who are responsible gun owners. So, you know, I think each country is unique, just like each community is Mm -hmm. really unique, but there's some shared strategies that we do know work. And we're funding youth violence prevention centers. We've funded them in Chicago and in Baltimore um, and in Richmond. Mm -hmm. When we have community level preventions to where we have things like violence interrupters um, or we engage the community in violence prevention strategies, we have seen decreases in firearm assaults and firearm homicides, but we have to have communities engaged Mm -hmm. in these evidence-based interventions. How do you do all this and and if you can, keep it in terms of this is what we want to do to help people and not get involved in the politics because you know you and I both know politics get involved and then nothing gets done sometimes yeah now I think it's really focusing on what we can do and that we all want to prevent needless deaths I I think back to all the heartbreaking moments I had in the Grady ER Hmm. where I had to tell you know a mom that she had just lost her son you know, or a husband that his wife had just died by suicide. And those are moments that, you know, they were really, I can't imagine the ripple effect it had on that family, but I know the toll it took on me just seeing it on a regular basis. And so we have to work together to prevent those deaths. So I think focusing on how we prevent deaths and injuries is the the way that we can really do this together. And doctor, do you feel there are different strategies that have to be enacted as it relates to specific populations and communities? And because there's an equity issue here as well, when we talk about specific communities, there's a socioeconomic gap here as well. So there is, you're right, there's not one size that fits all, but are you all addressing that as well in terms of racial and ethnic disparities here? I think that's really important to do. I think when you look at you know, we saw that counties with the highest poverty level had a firearm homicide rate nearly five times as high as those in um, the um, lower poverty level. So we have to address where you work, you know, where you go to school and your, your economic opportunities. Those are really important to give people the supports they need. Then you take it to the level of who's at risk. Is there, you know, somebody at risk for suicide or for committing homicide or other violence? How do you meet those people where they're at and intervene, whether it be through hospitals, communities, things like safe storage? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then at the community level, what can you do? And there's been studies that have shown that taking a vacant lot, cleaning it up, mm-hmm. that brings a community together, forms connectedness, and can also reduce assaults and suicidal ideations. Mm-hmm. So three different levels to really look at how we can intervene is also part of the problem for you all in the past because you mentioned I mean we all know there was a gap when there was no funding of all you know allowed for you all but sometimes this can change administration to administration it can change depending on which political party controls congress how do you all navigate through all that because you're on a roll let's say you're on a roll for four years or two years and all of a sudden there's a change in the political power and then you've got to you're maybe put back now you're trying to progress how do you all how can this get done if that is a barrier as well so certainly you know um 
in my mind, focusing on the data and the science is the best way to go. If we have mm -hmm. strategies that work and data, let that tell the story. And in um, President Trump's administration is when we received our funding for firearm violence. Mm -hmm. You know, um, currently under this administration, um, President Biden has proposed an increase for our community violence work. So in my mind, this is a bipartisan issue if we focus on data and strategies that work. Because we, as a leading cause of death, you mm -hmm. know, for those ages one to 45, we have to focus on preventing these needless deaths. And we can. Then how do you measure then? The, <laughs> you know, I love this question, too. I feel like I ask it every time. How do you measure then the effectiveness of these strategies? But have you even had enough time to implement them? Because this is a this is a nationwide approach here. So it could take five years, 10 years. Or do you look at. Okay, are we seeing some strategies work? That's a plus, and then maybe not look at the whole total package in terms of deciding whether or not, hey, this is something that has been impactful, and we we see this homicide, this gun, this firearm homicide rate decrease in six months, a year. So, great question, and I think we need to get to where we're looking at it at a comprehensive data level. Mm -hmm. Today, what we're looking at is we're funding 16 research projects. Mm -hmm. um, some are two years and some are three year projects. We should have our first data out this fall. So we're able to start looking at from those projects, what works? What are some new strategies we should consider? Those are projects though, so they might be based on a single strategy like um, gun shop partnerships for people mm -hmm. at risk for suicide or, um, bystander interventions, you know, in a 4-H group focused on safe shooting clubs. Yeah. So, and sport shooting. So those will be targeted interventions at those areas. But, you know, we also then are looking at community level interventions. And if we are fortunate to get funding increases, we can again, look at some of these community level strategies so that we can apply them at a bigger picture nationally. But right now we're looking at some of the projects that we're able to fund. And when that comes out this fall, I definitely want to bring you back to go over that. Dr. Deborah Ari, who serves as the acting principal deputy director and the head of the National Center for Injury Prevention at the CDC. We're talking about gun violence here across the nation, and how the CDC is using research, grants, and education to combat all of this. Dr. Ari, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. Come on back so we can talk about it. My pleasure. Delighted to come back and did also just want to put out the suicide helpline. Sure. 1-800-275-SAFE for anybody, or sorry, 1-800-275-TALK for anybody that is thinking about hurting themselves or anybody that they're concerned about. Please use that line as well. Absolutely. We'll have that information on our website as well. Thank you so much, doctor. Take care. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. DeKalb County's District Attorney is not charging any of the officers involved in the shooting death of Matthews at Oak Williams more than a year ago. And here's what we do know. DeKalb police were called to a wooded neighborhood in Decatur in April of 2021 over reports that a black man with a knife was on a nearby trail. And there was body camera footage that revealed Williams lunged at an officer with the knife. Now, police eventually pursued Williams into his home and they said Williams came towards him again, and that at that time, an officer shot and killed him. I spoke with the cab district attorney Sherry Boston earlier today. Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Let's begin here because for a lot of our listeners, we're always interested in process and how things work. And I wanted, if you can, take our listeners through the process. The GBI concluded their investigation, I believe, in July of 2021. And then that was transferred to your office uh, in order to make a decision. I want to be very clear about this. And this was whether or not to criminally charge the officers, including Sergeant Devon Perry, correct? Correct. Um, you know, we received this case from the GBI uh, in July. And and actually, um, before that, I met with the family because uh, the family had asked to meet with me. And even though we didn't actually have that GBI investigative file just yet. Obviously, we were aware of the case. And so I sat down with the family before I got the file just to hear uh, from them what their concerns were. And that's how we started. 
In that meeting with Matthew Williams' family, did you lay out to the family how the DA's office would determine if charges would be forthcoming? Did you take them through what your process would be? Yes. Um, because this was at the beginning of the process, we, we told them once we received the investigative file that we didn't consider that to be comprehensive, um, that we would take their file and initiate, initiate our own investigative findings, you know, interview all the witnesses, review all the evidence, um, and that ideally, in most circumstances, it is our hope and desire that we can complete that investigation if the file is complete within six months. Um, Did you also speak with the officers? I'm assuming you, you had to. At that point, no, I had not spoken with the officers. And and to date, we have not spoken with the officers. And that's not unusual because the officers did give statements mm -hmm. and recorded interviews. The GBI does that part. Um, and generally speaking, we don't speak to the officers in part because, you know, it's a criminal investigation mm -hmm. and they do have the right to not speak to us. Um, and so generally speaking, they, they give some, they will give statements and we will go off based on what the evidence shows. What if you have additional questions that were not answered or could not be determined based on their statement statements or the evidence that the information you have from the GBI, then what do you so do? So if we do, if we do have additional questions specifically for um, an officer involved case, what we can do is we would have to reach out to their counsel. Mm -hmm. Usually they have some sort of uh, union rep or lawyer that's representing them in administrative capacity and they might agree to speak with us, but then they might not agree to speak with us um, generally because they've already given statements. And oftentimes the lawyer will perhaps say, well, give me a list of questions. Um, so it, it's a little different. I mean, it's actually no different than in a criminal case. Mm -hmm. No one ever has to speak with the DA's office. It's a personal choice um, whether you decide to cooperate with our investigation. But um, in these cases, we already have um, witness statements that were taken from the very beginning in recorded interviews. You feel like you didn't have any other additional questions that you needed or a re-accounting re of the information? Go ahead. We had additional information that we definitely gathered, but that didn't have to come from Sergeant Perry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we obviously interviewed supervisors that were on scene about protocols and policies. We had a conversation with the medical examiner um, and the chief medical examiner. Um, we spoke with internal affairs and got copies of their reports because, you know, there were multiple investigations. So mm -hmm. we can gather all of that information without necessarily asking a direct question, say, to, you know, Sergeant Perry in this case. Does that and then we can also... I'm, my apologies, go ahead. I was going to say we can also interview, and oftentimes we do interview other people that perhaps were on the scene that we think might give valuable information. But again, in this case, um, which is not unusual, the GBI does a good job of sort of logging everybody on scene, getting all of those statements, and they get them recorded so that we can have the opportunity to listen to almost every eyewitness. Does that also include a review of an officer's file to see if there have been any other disciplinary actions in the past or any complaints from citizens? Yes. Um, when we do our investigation, and in this case, it was a, assigned to a specific investigator in our office, he treats this like any other case. So we get all of those records, post records, any records from the police agency. In this case, it was DKPD. All of that, if it's not already in the GBI's investigative file, are things that we put into our file as we are working through the course of our investigation. And when did your department, your office, complete the investigation? Um, well, that's, that's a difficult thing to answer because we probably met internally on this case mm, at least three or four times. Mm -hmm. So 
what will happen when 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 I'm reviewing these cases is initially the investigators and the lawyers assigned to the case may come in and say, these are the things we found. These are the areas we have questions about. And then, of course, I, after hearing their presentation of just the facts and evidence, may say, here's a punch list of 10 other things that I want to know the answers to. I need you to go out and get this information. So um, our investigation, we may be meeting consistently and constantly until I feel like we've come to a conclusion. And then once we come to a conclusion, that's when I will schedule a meeting to meet with the family and deliver that information to them. Within the investigation, does it also include background information and in this case, on the deceased, on Mr. Matthew Williams, and his history of what we now know, and the family has said, is uh, includes you know, mental, some type of mental distress. Does your investigation include looking at that, or are you solely focusing on the officers and the incident that happened last year? Well, we certainly, from the first meeting that we had with the family before I even got the file, they made us aware of his mental health issues, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, that was not um, a secret. Do we request, um, you know, information, personal information or documentation about a, a victim's history? In this case, no. Mm-hmm. In most cases, no, because um, it, Mr. Williams at this point is deceased. Mm-hmm. I am not, unlike a criminal case, right, where if Mr. Williams was charged with something, I would be looking at his background. Sure. Um, he he's not on trial here. I was here to determine what the officer's actions. So we certainly did not. I mean, we took the family for their word. We have no reason to disbelieve mm-hmm. what they said. And it was consistent. In your press conference, you mentioned when it comes to the charging determination, it involves the officer body camera footage, other evidence, Georgia statute as it relates to reasonable force by an officer, specifically did the body camera footage carry a considerable amount of what you needed in making your charging determination in order to determine to present to a grand jury? Absolutely. I mean, in this case, we had body camera footage from the first interaction with Mr. Williams by two sets of, uh, by two police officer. And then we had a second set of video camera and then really a third because when SWAT entered the home, mm-hmm. that was a whole set of different people. So we had body camera footage um, from from all of those incidents to piece together. So and a lot of it. So um, we certainly it made a difference because when you don't have body camera footage, you have to go off statements, right? Mm-hmm. What the witness statements are and piece it together. What we did was create a timeline that included everything from the nine one one calls that came in all the way to the end, which included footage, what people said on various videos and time stamping it. So we will create a comprehensive timeline of everything that happened. And in this case, the body camera footage was essential in creating a a really a second by second narrative of what happened. Am I correct in understanding that Georgia law, obviously I'm paraphrasing here, in terms of citing the use of deadly force if the officer reasonably believes that doing so is the only way probably to prevent death or harm to the officer or to any other third party, is that at the core when we talk about what Georgia Georgia's law is that relates to the use of deadly force? Yeah, and it's not just Georgia law. It's based in a U.S. Supreme Court case that dictates that when an officer is trying to arrest somebody for a forcible felony um, or to prevent um, escape, that the officer is justified and and legally authorized to use um, deadly, what we call deadly force, right, which would be a firearm because it can cause death. Is there, for our listeners who may not understand, then are you saying there is a difference between deadly force and reasonable force? They're not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. I mean, um, prime example, um, 
reasonable force um, usually is when we talk about um, perhaps if, you know, what someone, uh, the force that they're exerting, right? Mm -hmm. There's a difference between my hands and a baseball bat and a knife or a, you know, a taser, right? Sure. Um, and so, but when I'm talking about the law, when an officer is authorized to use deadly force, the law is very specific that that can be used um, if the person has committed what we call a forcible felony. And if we go back then to the part where it says, if the officer believes that in doing so is the only way to prevent death or serious injury to the officer or someone else, then comes in the context of, are we talking about reasonable force versus reasonable fear? Can you understand someone not under, someone saying, well, are officers really, are they first going on a reasonable fear and that leads to then deadly force? And I hope I presented that in a way that, that is coherent. If not, I can try and present it again. No, I think I understand what you're saying. What we have to first point out is that it's not a reasonable offer officer's standard it's actually a reasonable person standard right um so we're not in that case elevating the law doesn't say that there's a different standard for a person versus um an officer in that case they are entitled to use force um where there is a forcible felony committed um and it gets a little confusing right it does because let's be clear when we look at an officer when we say an officer involved shooting and then we look at a citizen upon another citizen for example in Ahmaud Arbery that that case and then you look at a case where it involves an officer and I can understand a listener saying well what's the difference because the men in the Ahmaud Arbery Mm -hmm. case were charged tried and convicted Right. But in this case, um, Ahmad Aubrey was running down the street. And even if, right, even if we assume that he did what they suspected he did, which there was no evidence of that, that at most was trespassing. Right. So the law in that case, the law in that case, let's just say those were three police officers inserted for the McMichaels and uh, Mr. Brian, mm-hmm. they would no police officer would be authorized to use deadly force if they were trying to arrest a person mm-hmm. for something as little as trespassing. So in going back to the case with the officers here, we do not see, and you correct me if I'm wrong on body camera footage, do we see Mr. Williams lunging at the officers with a weapon? So this is a really important distinction. We have to remember how we got to where we were, which is when the first two officers showed up and we have video footage of this, Mm -hmm. they were standing on the porch trying to speak with Mr. Williams. And Mr. Williams at that point took out the knife and chased the officers down the stairs. That was the first encounter. That's where the first discharge of a weapon happened. Mm -hmm. Um, When he lunged at and chased officer Morgan with the knife from that moment on, that was an assault, an aggravated assault of a police officer, which is a forcible felony under the law. So Mm -hmm. from that moment, any officer engaged with Mr. Williams was authorized at that point to use force as long as he remained armed, which Mm -hmm. he did up and until unfortunately he was shot. Also in that body cam footage, DeKalb County Police Chief Mirtha Ramos is seen asking if Matthew Williams was experiencing some type of mental episode. I do want to play that clip for you if we have it. Uh, so she saw everything? Yeah, she saw. She saw. Uh, well, I don't know. Did, she, did he hit, come at her with a knife? He came at one of those two with a knife. I'm not sure which one. Now let me ask you, did you look like he's mentally ill? Yeah, he's, he's absolutely mentally ill. Definitely. I had a, I had a long... Well, I guess as long as you can't advance, but I had a conversation with him on several times. He's definitely not the real. So in that case, the officer is saying, I had a long conversation with Mr. Williams. It appeared he was, as he put it, mentally ill. And D.A. Boston, does that, was that in any way an indication for your office that perhaps there could have been 
another process in trying to either get Mr. Williams to come out or call other some type of medical personnel in. I mean, I know it's 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 hindsight, mm-hmm. and and we all can ask questions afterwards. But just based on that, if an officer does realize that an individual is under some type of mental distress, could there have been another set? So, of- so let me. I'm so glad you asked that question because I think that is probably the question on the minds of of many of your listeners. And certainly I can tell you it's exactly what the family who I've spoken to several times feels like should have happened. Two things, let me point out two things here. First, when someone is armed with a weapon, whether it's because they are in mental health crisis or they just choose to pick up a weapon for Mm -hmm. the sole purpose of inflicting harm. Keep in mind that both of those situations are equally dangerous and present the same harm for a law enforcement officer or the public. Mm -hmm. So there's no distinction as to why you might have that weapon in your hand. The question is, if you have the weapon in the hand, does it present a danger? So that's the first thing I will point out. The second thing is this, it, the role that I'm in mm-hmm. is not to decide if the police department could have or should have done something different that might have yielded a different outcome. My role is to look at what they actually did mm-hmm. and if what they did violated the law to the extent that it required criminal charges to be made in a case. And even if there's a crime committed, because the, you know, when you shoot somebody, right, Mm -hmm. and kill them, they die, right? You did that. Mm -hmm. But the question is whether that's justified. That's the only thing that I'm here to look at. Now, it's for other folks to decide including the chief of police, if there are policies and things that they could have done on scene to prevent loss of life. Mm -hmm. But that is separate than a criminal charge. Does that make sense? And I I think that's important because this is through your you're giving this narrative. So that's what it is. I also know that district attorney's office Offices have often been involved in when we when we talk about different approaches in law enforcement and, and whether it's with wraparound services for folks or, or how do we prevent crime of that nature, working with juveniles, all of that. So I'll ask you this, given that and I know your your office has been instrumental in a lot of different initiatives, whether it's with trafficking, domestic violence. You and I have had those conversations before. So based on this case then and what happens, do you think then you would like to offer your input in terms of how something like this could possibly be prevented? You can't tell the chief how how to change her policy for the department, but does this lend some call for, you know, a conversation so that you don't have to do this again or keep having to do this? Absolutely. And I I can tell you that um, just this morning when I signed the official closure documents and those will be delivered to the chief and all the GBI and all the people that receive it, um, that document is about 16 pages long, Hmm. right, outlining my findings. But at the end of those findings, um, I, I give what I like to call unsolicited advice, right? which is where I say, um, and I did say very clearly that um, this was a tragic loss of life that could have been prevented and that I do, as I always do, encourage law enforcement chiefs and policymakers to consider how perhaps training in certain areas or even changing policies. In this case, I did not say change policies. I talked about training, Mm -hmm. but it's not unusual for me to make unsolicited suggestions on how 
we don't walk down this road again. And mm-hmm. it's up to those policymakers and those decision makers to decide if they're going to heed my advice um, or if they want to sit down and, and, and talk directly with me and my team about what our thoughts are, we're happy to share that. And of course, we did that in this case. But that's separate mm-hmm. from the decision, sure. right? I've made the decision about the charges, but I'm offering you some unsolicited advice to make our community safer for the future. I don't want anybody else to die. Finally, as we wrap up, DA Boston, you spent time with the family. How would you assess their receiving of the news that there will be no charges? They were candidly deeply disappointed. And I expected them to be. I didn't expect any other reaction, you know, given that they have lost a, a son and a brother. Um, but what I hope to leave them with, and I think they would say if you ask them that I did, which is A, I didn't leave any stone unturned in this investigation. B, I was thoughtful about reviewing this case from every angle, even if I didn't land on the angle that they see it from. And that C, um, I was willing to look at this uh, with unbiased and impartial lens, because that's the most important thing that we can do. Mm -hmm. The public feels like it's impossible sometimes for a prosecution office who works hand in hand with the police department to be fair. And in my opinion, the most important thing I can do in handling these cases is to be fair. I don't come in with any bias towards one side or the other. I look at the evidence and the facts and I make an impartial assessment based on what the law allows me to do. Is that also part of why it did take a long time? Uh, It was believed that perhaps there would be a determination made by the end of, well, the GBI thought it could be by the end of January, but this took a long time. It did. And I, why that's in, why it took a long time. And sometimes these cases do is because I have to think about it. At the end of the day, my team makes a recommendation and they give me evidence and I ask all the questions. But I have to be settled in my mind on those answers. And sometimes it's not at the end of a 30-minute presentation. Mm -hmm. Really, sometimes I have to go home and really put myself in a headspace. I'll just say it. I have to pray on it. Like, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? And what I is what I'm feeling as a mother, right? Is that getting in the way of the law? Like, I, I, I have to sit in it sometimes. So if prayer and spirituality is a part of that, this process for you, was that, do you feel comfortable in sharing that at any point through this that you might have thought, I need to really look at this again because perhaps I missed something? Was there any type of internal back and forth at all based on what you just told me? I, 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 I can candidly say I went um, round and round about this case. It was not, um, this was not a case that was open and shut to me. It was a case that I had to look at the evidence over and over and ask my team candidly, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And required them to come back to the table and answer those questions because those were lingering thoughts in my mind. And until I could extinguish those, I wasn't going to be done. Can you share if there was a moment there when you received some information that might have had a different outcome in, in what we're talking about today in terms of evidence, um, statements, conflicting statements? It, it, it wasn't conflicting statements. I will say that mm-hmm. um, this is not a case that was conflicting statements. And, and I'll tell you what I said to the family yesterday, um, because uh, Mr. Williams sister asked me really kind of what you're asking me. Did this ever feel strange to you? Mm -hmm. And my response to her was strange is the wrong word, but I think what you're saying is, is did I, did I ever feel like something didn't feel right? 
about this scenario. Mm -hmm. And I was honest when I said, yeah, I don't think I would. I'm a human being like everyone else, right? Like I can't leave those feelings and emotions at the door. So, you know, when you look at the scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Mental health crisis at his door, um, police everywhere. He won't put the knife down. Does this man, and you know, Sergeant Perry heard it on the audio. I know y'all played it. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone has said, he says, he says to him, I'm a black man. You're a black man. Um, you don't, I don't want you to die today. Like, and, and I'm saying it, like stating it. I mean, Sergeant Perry was, was begging when you listen to that audio, that was really impactful to me, but it tells you a little bit about the, the feelings and the emotions that were happening on scene. So yeah, that was hard to hear. That was hard to listen to. And I'm thinking in my head, no, you don't have to die today. I don't want you to die today. So those types of feelings um, definitely set with me. Mm -hmm. But I had to look at it and say, but did anybody do anything criminal? And the answer was, was no, under the law. And that's what I, that's the only thing I can base it on. DeKalb County District Attorney, Sherry Boston, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time for us. I realize we gave you short notice to make a decision to do this interview, so I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. It's always good to be with you. In a programming note, we will speak with the family of Matthew Zadok Williams next week right here on Closer Look. That is it for this edition of Closer Look, however. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online as well, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, you know, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast, so you can subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.